to you. Now, of course, with all of this equipment which is lined up behind us and with this familiar face, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that our first guest is the brilliant pocket billiard champion of the world, Willie Moscone. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host for this evening. And it's February 13th, 2014. Today is a pretty special day because it's Mike Howardson's birthday of AZ Billiards. We want to wish him a happy, happy. And I don't know how old he is, but I know that he's older than me. So <laughs> that's all that matters. Um, today is also a special day because if you have not bought something for your sweetie for Valentine's Day, then you are in a world of hurt. So you better get to it. <laughs> Valentine's Day um, is a special day, though, because 36 years ago on Valentine's Day, an epic match went down between the debatably the world's greatest pocket billiard player, Willie Moscone, and debatably the world's greatest hustler, Minnesota Fats. And they began an epic battle on television, no less. And it brought so much attention. It actually pulled in, I want to say, just under 11 million viewers. It was an astounding, uh, astounding viewership, especially for 1978. Um, so in regards to that event, I spoke with the actual person who made it happen. He coordinated and promoted and ended up being the referee for that event, Mr. Charles Ursetti, who obviously is now retired. Um, and just as a matter of a side note, he has an outstanding website where he has documented thousands of pool matches and billiard matches. Um, it is a treasure trove of information. So if you are up to that sort of thing, then go check out charlesarsetti.com. But uh, nonetheless, I want to welcome Charles to the show. And Charles, if you could start by telling us uh, a little bit more about how you got um, your start in the pool business or in the promotional business, as it were. And uh, how that whole bit with Willie and Fats got started. So I was always around the game. I was always around the characters, but never really got involved with the game until 1975. Okay. 76. Gotcha. And that was with the Professional Pool Players Association. Okay. And did you start off with the association uh, as a promoter, or did you have some other position with them? As a promoter, yeah. Okay. As a promoter and on the board of directors. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And at what point did you get hooked up with Moscone? 1977. Ah, okay, okay. What was it like to work with him? Willie was very, very... Uh, really introverted until he got on the table then his personality completely changed <laughs> he was a very private man uh, kept when he was home he liked his home life he liked his privacy 
he was sociable when he was in public, but he really wasn't an extrovert. Mm. He was more of an introvert. Right. He was used to being interviewed for, you know, 50, 60 years. Uh, he was the best at what he did. He was very modest about it. And he went about it like a business. He very, very seldom played unless he was doing an exhibition or he was practicing for a fats match. Because all the times I spent with him, which was days and days and days at his home, he never once says, let's hit balls. Yeah. About to go out and let's go hit golf balls. <laughs> Did uh, when, Whenever you first started working with him, was he still uh, under contract as an advisor to Brunswick? No, he stopped Brunswick, I believe, in nineteen in this in the seventies, early seventies, and he went to work for Ebonite. Mm, okay, okay. Wow. And then uh, basically, he just uh, retired. Okay. Now, how did this match between Fats um, and Moscone come to come to fruition? And I mean, I know I, about, I understand I'm about sorry, that's all right. Sorry. Uh, I understand about uh, the event, the argument that took place, obviously, in 77. But how did that even come about? Um, I was managing the printing plant and a young fellow came in and wanted to print the poster of himself. And he was holding a cue stick. And the fellow's name was Bruce Christopher. And he had told, showed me an article that appeared in the New York Daily News where he beat a Maharaja in India for $70,000 in a pool match playing on a gold inlaid pool table. So I printed the poster up for him, and we became fairly uh, friendly, and we would socialize. And then he came back and he wanted to print a book. And through him, I went to a couple of pool matches and met some of the greatest players in the world. Steve Miserak, Alan Hopkins, Ray Martin, Irving Crane. And they had just formed a new group called the Professional Pool Players Association, the PPPA. And one night, Bruce says, what are you doing tonight? Are you free tonight to go to a dinner? He says, Minnesota Fats is in town. And at that point in my life, 1976, I didn't know that there was a Minnesota Fats, so I responded, you're talking about Jackie Gleason? He <laughs> says, no, 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 it really is a character by the name of Minnesota Fats. His name is Rudolph Walter Wanderung Jr. Hmm. And uh, he's doing an exhibition match for a children's heart fund. I believe it was Fort Lee, New Jersey. And he's going to play the current world champion, Ray Martin, or former world champion, Ray Martin. Right. I says, okay, we'll go. It sounds like fun. So you go to meet Fats. They pick us up with a limo. We go there. And it's the first time I ever saw Fats entertained. Because all he did was talk, tell stories. And Ray Martin's pocketing balls. And he's not even paying attention. The crowd is roaring and roaring and roaring. And they're paying $100 a plate to watch two of them play. And the only one that's playing is Ray. Right. So... I get this idea. I says, you know, Bruce, you're supposed to be the young lion. 
the great pool horse for us today. And obviously, fat because of the movie is the left pool. Yeah. So, what if we book the match? He says, "Well, let's talk to him about it." So, I go to facts and say, "Facts, I'm thinking about doing, you know, the young lion versus the old legend." He says, "Do I have your permission?" He says, "You know." Go ahead, do whatever you need to do. Use my name. Just let me know what you're doing and what it, you know what I'm going to make. So I started going around. I didn't know Bruce really was a fraud. He had created some kind of record where he pocketed five thousand six hundred and something balls in twenty four hours. Right, right. Yeah. Now I knew Moscone's high run was five twenty six, and I said, "Could this guy be ten times better than Moscone?" <laughs> and at this point, I had never met Moscone. And um, one thing leads to another, and the pool world was not supportive of this match. They, they were okay with fans, but they knew Bruce was a foot. Uh. So I, I, at the time, at this particular time, I was partners in a, in a printing plant also, and we had room. So I had V. Laurier and Sons, which is a friend of mine in the bowling and billiard industry in New York, set up a pool table. And through some promotions, we got on the 5 o'clock Fox News practicing for a match at Minnesota Fast, and the, the, the board went out. But I still didn't have the support of the pool industry. So I went to the Guinness Book of World Records, figuring Bruce was in the Guinness Book of World Records. And they sent me the big fights who did all their TV promotions. I talked to Jim Jacobs, because at the time it was Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton. Caton was out with a bad back. One thing leads to another with ABC's Wide World of Sports with Jim Jacobs, and we booked the match, which took place uh, October 12, 1977, in the Hilton Ballroom with the World of Astoria. And it was Howard Cosell. And basically what happens, a camera breaks down. And people paid pretty good money to see this match. And I told Fats, Fats, why don't you tell them some stories? because I remember how amusing he was. And he starts telling stories. And he says, you know, somebody played Greenleaf, and he said, I played Greenleaf a thousand nights in a row and beat him a thousand nights in a row. Did you ever play Ponzi? Ponzi was a girl. Ponzi couldn't beat a drum. You know, and he went on and on and on bashing everybody. And people, some people are laughing. Some people are annoyed. And Gene Belukas actually yells out, did you ever play Moscone? Now, Moscone was hired at the time to be the color commentator or the expert commentator along with Cosell. Oh, so he wasn't even yeah. actually playing in the match. He was just there to just commentate? No. Okay, okay. Right, in this tuxedo. And what happens is Gene yells out that you ever play Moscone. But he don't answer directly. He says, I played them all and I beat them all. Willie bolts out of the chair. Because they were sitting like in on these big high player seats, which were fabulous. Gloria got us the seats from I don't know where, but they look like thrones. And he bolts out of the chair. He says, "Beat me." He says, "You never beat me." He says, "I played you five games in one pocket. Your game in 1949 for 50 a game, and I had to give you bus fare <laughs> to, to to go home." So they're arguing back and forth. Fattis got his cue in his hand, and he's waving his cue like a baton, and Willie had a cue, and he's waving his cue like a baton, and I said, look at these two old guys, they're going to kill each other. <laughs> so a light goes off on my head. Here's the legendary Hustler Fats. 
He is the world's greatest pool player, undoubtedly. Maybe this is a match. And Jim Jacobs and I look at each other, and I think two light bulbs went off over our heads. <laughs> and that was the beginning of trying to negotiate Fats and Willie for the match. Ah, okay. Now, at that point, I went and struck a deal with big fights. And I also knew that there was an organization there called the PPPA, Professional Pool Players Organization, with the greatest young players in the world. So I strike a deal with them that if I could get them on TV, I would have a multi-year contract representing them. And I already had the deal. We already sold the Fats and Woolly story, uh, show rather, to ABC's Wide World of Sports. And I included a trick shot show with six players, Miserak Hopkins, Margot Martin, Irving Crane, and Ernie Costa. To be taped the day of the Fats and Willie match, an additional would be a trick shot challenge match, which Miserak ended up winning. Right. And basically, that's how the Great Pool Shootout came about. <laughs> it was through a busted camera in a question by Gene Belukas to the audience, or to Fats, did you ever play Willie? So yeah, and then that that just out of you know the avalanche. Oh no, no, that's funny stuff. I didn't realize that uh, that Willie was just there for the commentary. That uh, yeah. Now that's funny. Now what happened? How did the actual match go down? As far as the first match between Fats and Moscone, how did that work? Basically, we had to come up with a format which they both agreed upon. Obviously, Willie would want to play 20,000 points a straight pool, and Fats wanted to play a race to whatever in one pocket. So I says, let's be fair and eliminate both those games. Let's play all short rack games. Remembering that in 1973, with the last telecast of then the U.S. Open, like they believe Miserak played Luke um, Lassiter, and the match got down to about 18 minutes of safety play. Yeah. And they couldn't edit it. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to, to keep an unknowledgeable viewing audience entertained for 18 minutes of two guys <laughs> right. not making a ball. <laughs> right. So that was sort of the demise of pool on TV. There was one telecast after that in 1974, which was a trick shot show starring Willie, Howard Cosell, and Rune Ollard, who was the president of ABC Sports, coming out of the New York Athletic Club, where Willie entertained for a little bit doing trick shots, and he had Rune Ollard do a trick shot, and people from the audience, you know. It was it was really entertaining. Then I came around with the uh, Fats-Bruce Christopher match, which never was aired because of technicalities in, uh, in production. It never aired. But out of that match, not airing, came the Great Pool Shootout. So once we got the, the, them to agree, and the reason that the both of them agreed to play came down to money. They were given X amount of dollars to show up, win, lose, or draw. Plus bragging rights, plus first-class accommodation as the Waldorf Astoria, wide world of Howard Cosell. You know, it was really, really top, top, top shelf. Mm-hmm. And it was what it was. Willie was there as Willie, the great legend. 
in fact, was there as Fats, the great legendary player. I mean, there were mishaps right from the get-go. Fats came in dressed in a pullover shirt, very nicely dressed, very neat. Willie came in with a sports jacket. Willie had never played without a jacket or a tie or a tuxedo. And they started an argument over the, the, the attire. <laughs> and Fats comes out with a comment. And Willie refused to play. And then Jim Jacobs negotiated. Willie, Willie took off his jacket and got a round of applause. See this on, on YouTube. He got a round of applause for taking his jacket off. Wow. And Fats came out with one of the funniest statements I ever heard. And he said, putting a pool player in a tuxedo is like putting whipped cream on a hot dog. <laughs> you know. Another funny thing that happened was at one point in the match, Fats took out $51,000 bills and fanned it out across the table and told Willie to play for any or all of it. And Willie's response was, I don't carry my life savings around in my back pocket. <laughs> so they were doing battle. I mean, just uh, see right, right on YouTube that they were arguing about the rules. Well, in all fairness to Willie, and in all fairness to Fats, the facts were this. Willie wanted to eliminate luck. So he wanted to play close in all games, whether it was eight ball, nine ball, or rotation. Right, right. He wanted to play call shot, which obviously I don't blame him because you're eliminating the luck. Yes. Um, facts, when, when I gave him the rules, we nailed them to him. And I got on a plane and physically went to St. Louis and met at the airport, gave him the rules, went over the format, went over everything. He said, hey, we at the rules. Don't make no difference. He can't win no matter what rules he played. You know, he didn't care. Until the day of the tournament. Once the day of the tournament was, if he didn't understand the rule, then he complained about it. But yeah. prior to that, he was given notice. And the, rule, the rules were the rules. There was no lucking the ball in. If you made a ball in a break and you didn't call it, you went back on the spot. This was all laid out. Right. But Fats didn't care. He wanted to play. That was it. Yeah. It was a great, a great event. People were, were betting money that they would never play. And, of course, they lost. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Willie showed everybody he was still Willie. Fatty showed everybody he was the greatest entertainer in the world. And it was a win-win. And that snowballed into the television networks, all of the networks. We were on ABC, CBS, NBC. ABC, I think we did five years. CBS, we did seven years. NBC, I believe we just did two shows, one or two shows. ESPN, obviously, they're still on ESPN. I mean, I worked with Chris Berman when it was Chris Berman's first major event. Wow. Nobody knew Chris Berman was today. You know, 25 years later, he's an icon. Right, right, right. No, that's some exciting stuff, that's for sure. And and it's, you know, I, it's a different world, obviously, than it, than it was then. Uh, you know, things are perceived differently than they were, and there's a lot more. Uh, entertainment to compete with than there was back then as far as television is concerned. So um, I think you guys definitely 
um, you created a very historic and unique piece of pool history all by yourselves. That's, uh, I mean, props to you for that, just for the fact that you guys brought Fats and Moscone together for that event. So they, they started it, and then we grew it. I mean, the next thing we did is we took two young players, which happened to be Miserac and Hopkins. And a lot of people don't know, because of big fights, and myself, Miserac got the Miller Beer commercial. Yeah. Because yeah. Miller Beer was one of the sponsors of the fights, and Big Fights was the, had the largest film library, boxing film library in the world. And through them, they they wanted to do a commercial. They had an idea. And Miserac, P.D. Margo, Alan Hopkins, and Ray Martin went and in, in interviewed for the commercial. Of course, Steve did it and probably did more more for the game with his commercials than the game itself. <laughs> yeah, this is very true. He, you know, even when you're just showing off and practice, practice, practice. I mean, you know, that lasted several years. And, and I mean, Steve became a major celebrity because of it, which he deservedly, you know. Yeah. As a player, he was a great player. Four consecutive U.S. Opens, two world titles. God knows how many, nine ball, eight ball, one pocket. He just played everything well. Yeah. You know, and I mean... Uh, like I always say, facts don't cease to exist because you choose to ignore them. The fact of the matter is, because of the Willie Fats tournament, we grew it. Mm. Next came Miserac and Hopkins. After that, I created something called the Legends, the Lions, and the Ladies. And it was Fats and Willie, Miserac and Hopkins, and we even put Laurie John and Gene DeLucas on. Excellent. Did you... Then in 1980, we did a King of the Hill series. We had 10 players. Competing for, for I think ten thousand a match in uh, at the Sands Hotel, and it went on for three weeks. On U- USA years ago was a sports network, and it's not today. But it was a sports network, and they did ten weeks of the King of the Hill series, and we had all great young players in there. Again, we had Jeannie Belucas there and Laurie John representing the women, Cicero Murphy. Miserac, Hopkins, Martin, Lugutera, Fats. And if you won, you came back. Uh, you know, Miserac won the- <clears throat> that brings up a good question. Let, let me ask you this. What do you think, well, better yet, do you think something like that is still possible today? Do you think that that's possible to pull together the players and put together something that could be so um, well received I think what's lacking today versus what was lacking which was there years ago was I don't see any true personalities in the game. There'll never be another Minnesota Fats. Right. There'll never be another Willie Moscone. There'll never be another Irving Crane. You had basically two schools out there, the old school and the new school. The old school was Crane, Lassiter, Karras, Willie, Jimmy Moore. You know, I, I was so privileged to work with them. You had characters. You had U.J. Puckett. U.J. Puckett was a character. 
right. with his big cowboy hat. I mean, he could play, but he was funny. Facts. Never had to hit a ball, and he was funny, and he was entertaining, and people loved him. Right. I mean, I can't say Mr. X now is the new Minnesota Facts. Right. I can't say Mr. X is now the new Willie Moscone or Irving Crane or right. Luther Lassiter. Right. It doesn't exist. Why doesn't it exist? I don't know. I look at the attire. In 1978, Professional Pool Players Association moved from having two events in Asbury Park, New Jersey, to putting an event on in the Bilton Hotel in New York City. I told everyone they have to play in tuxedos. They said, oh, you're crazy. I said, no, if you go back 100 years in history, they always played in tuxedos right. in very formal dress. Right. I said, what you're going to do is cause the audience to dress up to the players. Right. The first day when the tournament opened, the players came out in tuxedos. There was a lot of oohs and ahs. And the audience was dressed however they were dressed. Mm-hmm. The rest of the week, the audience dressed up to them. There were no more t-shirts with the grateful bed or a finger sticking up in the back or, you know, up yours or whatever nonsense they would wear. Right, right. They were coming in with shirts, maybe college shirts, dress shirts, without ties. Some people with ties. Some people had sports jackets. Mm-hmm. You know, people dressed up to the event. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's about. Right. Because if the players have class, the audience has class. If the players come out looking sloppy and like slobs, what, what is the audience going to do? They're going to mimic what they see. Exactly, exactly. I feel the same way, you know. this is um, It's the same with the pool halls and the establishments where if, they go, if you go into a pool hall that looks like crap, then you're going to treat the place like crap. But if you go in, the, exactly. you know, if you go into a building that's nice and it and uh, looks nice and everything's in good condition, then you feel bad actually about you know not acting the part or treating the equipment or treating the tables with respect. So I think I'm sure that that has a lot to do with it. You know, people. I think everyone down deep in their heart likes dressing up and going out. Sure. Now, you don't have to have a formal gown or you don't have to have a tuxedo. But, uh, you know, people enjoy going out and feeling good about themselves and being with nice people. Mm-hmm. If you're going into some billiard rooms, which I've been in, that I wouldn't want to go in, you know, with a machine gun. <laughs> it's, you know, what is it going to do for the game? Right. It's like when people write books. I don't want to mention anybody's name. But a guy writes a book and tells stories about a pool player. Uh, one of them that I just read a chapter where uh, a story goes, two fellows are driving home. One is a pool player. He stops his car in front of somebody's house, takes a 12-gauge shotgun out, and blows all the windows out of the guy's house. That's a nice story. Yeah, right. You know, my kid comes in, hands me that book. Yeah, you're going to be a pool player. Sure, <laughs> if I die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, oh. I mean, what does it do for the game? There's enough of funny stories. Right. There's enough of funny stories out there that are amusing. Right. And people would enjoy hearing silliness. Right, right, right. Right. You know, I mean, there's, there's a great story. I believe the guy's name was Lewis Fox back in the 1800s when uh, a fly on a ball. It landed on the ball. Well, yeah, I know that story. Okay, and in the. And, the guy got so upset because he lost, he went and drowned himself. I mean, okay, it's a story. 
but he's not blowing out people's windows in the house. Right, right, exactly. Well, you know, I, I agree with you in the stories part, and that's exactly why Fats and, you know, some of these other guys, it, it's not that they were bad people, they were just entertaining. And that's yes. unfortunately one of the things that is lacking. And, and I don't mean that, that I'm not taking a shot at anybody by saying that. What I'm saying is the entertainment value is is the same thing as getting to know something about the players. And that is it gives you something, a reason to connect, a reason to get behind somebody, to either love them or hate them. It's the personality that matters. Right. I mean, it's look at who's the old school today. I mean, are, are there any real class players like there were in the Marconi, Crane, Karras, Lassiter, Jimmy Moore, Puckett era? Right. You know, who, who are the senior citizens today, and how do they represent the game? Well, they certainly you represent know. it better than 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 the current batch of players. I'll put it to you that way. Okay, and, and I think that they're both lacking. The current guys a lot. You know the difference between being a personality. Like Fat was a Fats was a bragger. Mm-hmm. Okay, but everybody knows a, a, a lot of us was you know. Like he told a story one day. He says I could do seven things better than any living human in the world. <laughs> I'm the greatest card player. I'm the greatest crap shooter. So I'm the greatest pistol shot in the world. I'm a, I was a professional pistol shooter. I traveled all over the world for a Swiss company called Sphinx, and that's all I did for years, travel shooting. Hmm. So I'm listening to Fats' story. I said, Fats, tell me a story about shooting. He says, I'm in the Louisiana Bayou with the sheriff, and he has his deputy stand 50 feet away and light a cigarette, and he shoots the ashes off, and he says, Fats, how are you going to beat that? He says, I'm going to shoot him back on. <laughs> you know, I mean, just that's it's funny, it's bull, but it was funny, uh, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, what do the guys do today? They come out instead of being funny, they come out being obnoxious, exactly, and they make you hate them rather right. than laugh, right? Right. So what? Fats was full of crap. So who cares? Right. He was. You made me laugh. Exactly. I spent three weeks with him one time, three consecutive weeks. This is when we were doing the, the King of the Hill series because it was a big problem sending him there and then bringing him back. We shot for a week. It was a week off. And then we went back the third week. So they made him stay. The hotel loved it. He would walk around the hotel and entertain people. and hit, They had a pool table set up. He hit balls. And we went on uh, Good Morning uh, Philadelphia, AM Philadelphia, uh, Midnight in Philadelphia. We never, all the Philadelphia shows, we constantly The hotel loved it. All kind of press in the papers for weeks. Mm-hmm. And I just, I never stopped laughing. I mean, it just absolutely was funny. Yeah. Well, I think you hit, you, yeah, exactly. And you hit the nail on the head. It's entertainment. And that's, uh, you know, you don't have to be a professional player and you, you barely even have to be a fan to enjoy something like that. You really do. Right. Well, Charles, listen, I got to get out of here. So I thank you, sir, for taking the time to talk with us about you know, your experiences 
and uh, you take care, and uh, we will talk to you again soon, sir. Bye now. All right. Take care, buddy. Hi, I'm Scott Lee, PBIA Master Instructor from Largo, Florida. And I'm Randy Gettlicker, PBIA Master Instructor from Dallas, Texas. And welcome back to uh, One Minute Pool Instructor. And uh, today's topic is the value of self-talk. Why we use self-talk or a mantra. Boy, that's a, those are two words, Scott, that I don't know if many people understand. Well, what is a mantra, Randy? A mantra is a, uh, a song, a chant a saying that if we repeat it over and over it becomes a habit all right but a mantra should be written down a mantra should be something we can read it um, and, and certainly uh, I hear you teach that it's it's generally used in a training routine absolutely and no matter what we uh, do as an occupation almost all of us at one point or another once we uh, went into our chosen occupation, someone took us aside and helped us understand the dynamics of whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing. And then at some point, there's a role reversal, and uh, we are asked to explain that same process to make sure that we clearly understand it. And at that point, we are now practicing what we trained ourselves to do. So in, in pool, we use a mantra and self-talk to help us create our best case process. So does, does in, in game time then, Scott, how does that work for you? Uh, is it still verbal and out loud? It isn't for me personally. I mean, it could be for anyone, but the whole idea is that we're using the, the uh, verbal and the mental uh, training to get us to the point where we can reproduce the same process without having to think about it. Wow, that's hard to do. Now, I've noticed that uh, uh, professional bowlers and golfers have really got ironclad uh, self-talks, mantras. They, they do. They do. And that's, uh, that's certainly something that uh, every player can benefit from. So a mantra then, or self-talk, is a process that we train ourselves uh, verbally and written uh, until it becomes, what, subconscious? Yes, or rote. Yes. So we can do it without thinking at all. And that's our, that's our uh, end goal, uh, is to be able to do our process from start to finish without having to think about it at all. And the other thing I'd like to add here is um, the mantra, or self-talk, is the third of the three pre-shot routines. So Absolutely. it's actually a written pre-shot routine. Yes, it called is. Called the uh, action part. And we're going to get into what are those three pre-shot routines. When are we going to do that? We're going to do that in our next segment. Uh, three pre-shot routines, three our next segment. Alright, this is Randy G, checking out. This is Scott Lee, and uh, we'll see you next week on the One Minute Pool Instructor.
I'm your host, Allison Fisher of NYCGrind.com, and joining me today is NYC Grind founder and creative director, Jerry T. Welcome to the show, JT. What's up, guys? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited about this episode, so thanks. So this week, we're going to touch on a couple things that have happened recently that we're very excited about in professional pool, as well as current and ongoing that being a bonus ball in the WPBL playoffs. But first, we're going to have JT touch on the action at the Derby City Classic, which recently wrapped up in Elizabeth, Indiana, just outside of the Derby City, Louisville, Kentucky. So, JT, why don't you tell us um, your breakdown of what you thought was most exciting about this really, I would say, uh, one of the greatest years that the Derby has had in its history. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm excited to speak on this topic. Um, one of the most influential experiences for me was going to the Derby City Classic when they had the event at the Executive West Hotel in Louisville. And they really, I mean, I was blown away by the history, the mystique. And basically, there was a certain aura that that the Derby represented that really resonated with me. It was really, it was just like real. It, it was um, palpable. I, I almost like sensed that, almost that the room was a character and in the story that was unfolding that was the Derby City Classic. And now things have shifted a little bit. It moved from the Executive West to uh, Harris, um, Southern Indiana. And uh, Harris rolled out the red carpet for the players and fans. And I want to give a, a big shout out to Greg Sullivan, you know, and the whole Diamond team, Bad Boys, Billy Productions for rolling out the red carpet, setting up all the tables. And basically everyone that was involved, you know, the tournament directors, Ken Schumann, uh, uh, Jay Helfert um, and so many different people that contributed Bill Stock and you know Pat Fleming and AccuStats rolled out the red carpet in the arena but basically I was very excited about the turnout I believe that the turnout was a huge success across the board I know they had 263 players in the nine ball I think they had more than that in the banks and the one pocket I mean they were just they were huge successes across the board it showed that pool was alive and what I was most excited about to see at the Derby City Classic was um, not only a real star-studded lineup of different people, but you know I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and I appreciate a lot of different cultures and you know people from all walks of life, and I appreciate the foods from all walks of life, and I'm very open-minded in that regard, and I love to see diversity around me, and what I was really impressed with was the amount of international players that was at the Derby City that that was at the Derby City Classic. And the Derby's known for, of course, bringing in some of the greatest Filipinos who have uh, who have dominated there in the past. Efren Reyes, by the way, won the uh, he won the one pocket. He won six. He won the one pocket this year. This is the 16th year of the Derby City Classic, and Efren won six out of the 16 one pocket championships. That's incredible. That's, I mean, that's. That's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. It, it absolutely is. And here's Efren Reyes. I don't know. Was he like 59 years old he is or something? 59. Like 59. Yeah. And he's still winning the event. Unbelievable. So it just goes to show you how um, how this game of pool is. You know, it's really like it's a it's an equalizer. You could be 59 years old and beat some of the greatest players, the young guns up in the game. And the other aspect of the game that I was most excited about was the young guns. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is there's a nice tie-in from the international players into the young guns. And I, and I believe, like, that's that's Jeanette Lee. Jeanette Lee draws a huge crowd across the board, a lot of young people interested in the game. And 
you know, she's a, she's an international player, but she's a New Yorker. Like she came from Queens, New York originally. That's her hometown, and um, you know now she's she's living closer to where the Derby was held, and you know she's loved in the South and everything. And I think that she's she's almost like an international ambassador of the game, or she she's absolutely bridging is. it. You know, yeah. like she, it's she's like yeah. a perfect conduit almost. And what I was alluding towards is the young guns. So like Jeanette. She still represents that young, you know, what what the young guns represent, that hunger, the that fresh, fire, that yeah. fresh, the style, mm-hmm. the sexuality, the all that. Uh, and really, it's the hunger. And that's what I see in the young guns. And I, at the Derby, I was blown away. I've seen a lot of these these players I'm about to mention evolve over the years. But I, I'm blown, I mean, I'm really blown away at the amount and at the quality of talent that is being, um, you know, that the USA has right now. The young guns up and coming in the sport gives me a lot of, I guess, uh, optimism mm-hmm, of for the future for and a lot of hope mm-hmm. for you too, you know? For sure. So, right. So, like, for example, I watched Justin Hall play out there. Justin Hall was remarkable. Uh, Brandon, Schuff, Brandon Schuff was amazing. Um, I spent a lot of time watching Skylar Woodward play, and I'm just blown away by this kid. Uh, who else? Um, Justin Bergman. I had an opportunity to watch play, and he was amazing. And Sergio Rivas, 14-year-old kid who's who I think really broke out. He showed the world that he's he, he's here to he's here to stay, and he's here to play, and he's the future of the game along with a few other bad boys. And I also just want to mention um, a couple of really like underdogs who came with some big wins. Uh, um, Chris Bruner from Virginia uh, beat Justin Bergman in a real gutsy fiery match that I enjoy and I, I mean some big name heavy hitters really came uh, came with like some amazing masterful one pocket um, Scott DeFreeze of Frost was, in, Frost, Frost was amazing Shannon Bolton was amazing all week I was blown away and you know bottom line the young guns John Mora John Mora John, uh, Jason Klatt um, that was a great matchup Hill Hill I, I was pretty much blown away by the way it all unfolded uh, John Mora he kicked, he kicked safe. I think it was the two ball, and then and the ball ended up going in. And Jason would have been safe, and you know, John. Oh, it was Shane kicking. in the oh, finals. That yeah. was in the finals uh-huh. with Shane, right? Yeah, that was Hill Hill, Hill Hill in the finals, and you could not ask for. I mean, what a heartbreak! Wow, seriously. How the ball went in the side oh. pocket, left him safe, and then John hit it, and and then just left Shane an opportunity. He ran out. And I will, I will just say this. Uh, John and Shane, for me, really represent what the the level of class of the players that are out there today. They are two uh, great gentlemen and star star players in North America. So I salute them as well as Brandon Schuff. A lot of these players that are showing their their character um, and their the way that they treat the the sport is very professional absolutely and i just want to mention another young gun that i was i spent a lot of time watching Mm -hmm. and i really am forecasting um a lot of success for this young gentleman his name is jason shaw from scotland and he spent a lot of time here in new york and i've had an opportunity to watch him battle here and you know everywhere we go i watch him play i mean he's in the mix he's battling and i think he's got what it takes to to, to I think once he once he knocks off one of these really one of these big events, I think he has the capability of. Really and it's only a it matter in. of time. It's just a matter yeah. of time. But I gotta run. I want to touch on bonus ball quickly, and then I'm gonna have to uh, let Allison wrap this because uh, unfortunately I gotta keep it moving. 
But bonus ball. It's Las Vegas, Nevada right now. Um, right now, I mean, we're in the East Coast, but right now in the West Coast where it's not snowing and, uh, <laughs> you know, th there's a lot of heat and energy going on. Bonus ball is in its playoffs. And last night, we, uh, their um, semifinal match between New York and Atlanta streamed on ESPN3. Could you, you can talk a little bit about Bonus Ball, but I'm excited that ESPN3 is providing Bonus Ball with a little exposure, which is, which is really opening up some doors. And I believe that they're doing a pretty good job over there across the board. I think they've stepped it up for the playoffs. What are your thoughts on Bonus Ball? My thoughts are that it is a huge boost for a professional pool, and there are a lot of positive things that I will touch on, mainly being that in addition to ESPN3, the local Las Vegas Action 13 News has given Bonus Ball and its players some great coverage. They hosted uh, Scott Frost and uh, referee Michaela Tab live on the show. So there's a lot more exposure happening. And I will tell you what, I listened and watched the semifinal match last night. And they did some excellent, excellent commentary, Scott Frost and his co-host, who they really broke down how the plays are unfolding and helped the audience, and myself also, particularly since I'm not very well versed in bonus ball yet, I'm really sort of learning the ins and outs, and it's an extremely fascinating and dramatic game. And both of those teams put their hearts yeah. out on the line there to get into the finals for a big, um, big, uh, big pressure, big pressure to move on to the finals. So tonight is going to be the second semifinal, and the final uh, winner from that match will go on to play Atlanta. Atlanta's team, Johnny Archer, Shannon Dalton, and Dennis Hatch defeated New York last night and it was very dramatic. And I will tell you what, I just give a lot of credit to all the players out there in Vegas putting it on the line and really making something positive happen. All very, very, very professional people all around the production and the work that everyone has put into. I truly, I give a lot of credit to everyone there so I wish them the best of luck and we will look forward to watching the second semifinal match tonight it's going to be at 6 30 p.m. Uh, pacific and 9 30 p.m. eastern time okay. on ESPN3.com awesome I'm looking forward to it I'm going to be watching it and I want to also mention that I'm pleased to announce that NYC Grind will be releasing a Super News Spotlight video on the Derby City Classic. We're going to do a couple different videos that basically will highlight um, and, you know, basically how we captured the event throughout the, the entirety of, of our time there. So we put together a really cool, fast-moving highlight video to really great music that I believe you'll enjoy. And you'll be able to watch it on NYCGrind.com. We'll make it our featured video. We haven't dropped it yet. But look for it later on this evening, uh, you know, Thursday evening. So I'm excited about it. On that note, I got to go. And uh, it was really an honor and a, a privilege to, again, be involved with American Billiard Radio for this episode. And, um, again, I remain optimistic for 2014. 
I'm looking forward to the Empire State Championship this weekend. I'm going to play in it. And I love pool right now more than ever. And I'm excited about it. So once again, thank you very much. Thank you um, for loving the game as well. And I'll see you around. All right. Thanks a lot, JT, for joining us. And I'll just uh, wrap up with a couple more things I want to make sure we touch on. Um, namely, there's going to be a live stream happening at the Empire State Championships this weekend from Rack's Pool Room in West Hempstead, Long Island. AZ Billiards and AZBTV are going to be doing the live stream with Upstate Al on site uh, via the AZBTV Ustream channel, and that'll be free to watch. And on the West Coast, we are going to have the Swanee Memorial streamed by POV Pool. So those are going to be two great live streams for you guys to check out. We've got, of course, Bonus Ball. Like I mentioned, it's going to be Minnesota Outlaws versus the Pittsburgh Poison tonight, 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time. And I just want to thank everybody for tuning in this week, and I hope you enjoy all of uh all of what's to come this weekend if you get to get the chance to check out the live streams so i'm allison fisher for american billiard radio and pool on the grind signing out Hello, everybody. Welcome to AZ Billiards on American Billiard Radio. I'm Mike Howerton. This week, I am joined by a true jack-of-all-trades, Joe Tucker. Uh, Joe's over in our neck of the woods. He's in Vegas this week. Uh, Joe, I I'm thinking the hardest-working man in billiards might be something to go on your business card. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for that, that compliment. But, I don't know, there's a lot of a lot of people busting their butts out there. Joe, I... From the beginning, we knew you as a player, and, and quite an accomplished player at that. Um, I mean, you've been playing back to the Camel Tour. Yeah, that was what I was aspiring to do, you know. That was uh, building up, trying to... Back then, we had to qualify. Like, I had to win a qualifier to get a spot. When I just tried to send in my entry fee, they didn't take it back then, you know. Don Mackey, Camel Tour, and I was just young, up and coming, so I didn't have much of a history. So they're like, uh, well, you're going to have to go qualify, son. And uh, and I did, fortunately, and got on there, and that was a, a great tour. And uh, I loved playing on it. But kind of when they folded up shop, it was about the same time I was having my first uh, child. So I kind of folded up shop on the, the pro billiards career, for the most part. On a brief side note, um, I know back to the Camel days, a number of the players really liked the idea that you couldn't just – pay your entry fee and play. Uh, what were your thoughts on that? Oh, Mike, I mean, absolutely. Um, not to say point out any one specific tournament and badmouth anybody, but I hate the idea that my mother can send her entry fee in to some of the most prestigious tournaments in this country and uh, play on, on the side of me if she wants to. I can't stand it. <laughs> well, and, and what exactly, I mean... The flip side of that, you know, the up-and-coming players who, who haven't necessarily paid their dues, um, I mean, what's wrong with competing alongside them? Because, look, I don't play at that level, so I don't know. Well, I say give them a path that they can earn 
their way there or kind of prove their way there. And I'm sure we'll get to that because that's what I'm working on. Um, yeah, I like a path that, that proves it. I mean, I've played on the side of some, some shady characters in pool tournaments. And uh, just this past year, I've seen one so drunk. <laughs> they, oh, I don't know how good he plays, so he's not fair. Uh, <laughs> but they just get in for fun. If they can afford it, they can get in. And I don't, I don't like it. Okay, so you were an accomplished player. Then you became a tour, uh, a tournament, or a tour director. Which would you prefer? Uh, well, it was Mike Zuglin's tour, right. and I was the, the tournament director. So he was the tour director, and I was the tournament director. Yeah, good distinction there. And that was when? Oh, I don't remember the exact years. Um, yeah, I don't know, Mike just got in a little jam. You know, he had one guy running the tournaments, and uh, they parted ways and he always asked me will you will you do it because I had a lot of experience running uh, local tournaments at house pros snookers and and I just knew that and I loved the Joss tour at the time and I was like absolutely because when that tour started um, it was it was awesome for everybody up there in the northeast and I loved the way it was running so I was like yeah you know I'm not playing all the time uh, it's guaranteed money I love the tour and I ran that for a few years with Mike. I had to quit that one. When uh, kind of what I thought was the novelty of regional tours kind of wearing off, you know, even at, never mind a national level, but I saw there wasn't enough good players to constantly support big fields of 80 to 100 players. I could, could see the expenses wearing on the players slowly year after year. Well, that was kind of before a lot of the regional tours seemed to shift from open events to amateur events, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And do you think that that has helped the tours or helped the game, or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, that's a tough one. There's so many different tours with everybody competing with each other. Um, it's so easy for anybody and a lot of unqualified people to start up their own tour with the, the idea of creating like a part-time job on the weekend. I'm going to start this great new tour, this handicap tour, and they'll pop up. It would be much better if somehow we could get, obviously, more unity instead of everybody trying to cut each other's throats. Um, and then the handicap blends into that. You know, a lot of people stop playing open events because automatically it was okay well, why do I want to play with them? I can't. I can't win. You know, what, what kind of weight am I getting? So, there's a shift that has taken place in the last 20 years in the mentality of the players. A little bit more on, I'm only going to play if I can win. And before it used to be, I wanted to be better. You know, if I, if I want to compete, I would go and practice. Well, you, you do have a point there. There does seem to be a shift in the mentality that, that people feel like they need to have a chance to win the tournament. You don't see very much anymore the players just getting out there and saying, I played Efren Reyes or I played Earl Strickland. It's, well, I don't want to play against them. I can't win. Uh, do you think that's that's the economy or, or is something else caused that? Combination. Combination. Economy, definitely. We all know that. Nobody uh, can afford the disposable income. And I just think the mentality, I mean, I literally see weak players sticking their chest out, woofing 
pro-level players or open players, you know, I'll take the last six from you. And (laughs) (laughs) that's becoming common and acceptable, whereas years ago, a guy was embarrassed to ask for the eight ball or something or a little bit more pride in themselves. Now, uh, they don't have that. So a combination of the money, definitely. And I have seen firsthand, you know, especially this year, I've been on the road all year, people are not trying to get better. One of the worst examples was a student of mine playing in a handicap tour. She had never even cashed. She went to sign up one day, and she was told that her handicap was going to get raised. She said, why? And they said, because we heard you taking lessons from Joe Tucker. What kind of message is that? Well, besides a recommendation for your lessons. (laughs) She said, don't practice. Don't take lessons. Uh, Don't buy any DVD. Don't do none of that. Stay home. We'll give you more weight. But if you do that stuff, we're going to punish you. That's actually a perfect seg into getting better. Uh, What, mid-2000s, you came out with, uh, what was your first uh, instructional aid? Um, Well, first, by accident, I did the Racking Secrets book. Um, I'll tell you really quick, because I like people to know this, that I actually just submitted a six-page article to a magazine exploiting all the flaws in nine-ball rack, why we shouldn't be playing that. And I was teaching the referees and players on the Campbell Tour, too, why we shouldn't be doing nine-ball because the rack was so important between good players and we should switch to ten-ball. And the magazine called me back and said, do you think you can write a book on this? And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, I didn't set out to do this, but that sounds like a good idea to me, you know? So that's how that's I wrote the book, then the DVDs came after that. So that was uh, the first one, and that was about the same time I did my first book on drills that I used in my lessons. You know, it was just a guaranteed improvement drill book. It had 10 drills that I repeatedly used in my lessons because it, it had skills that I knew for sure players had to have to play pool. You know, anybody can make up a drill. There's a million of them. Uh, But some of them are more valuable than others, and they give people skills that I know for sure that they need. So, yeah, that was around 99, 2000, both of those. And then how did the third eye stroke trainer come into that? That was from my students. It was a beautiful thing, you know. I checked the alignment, and if you look down the barrel, um, at least minimum, 80% 80% of all people are off-center on the cue ball. And I'm talking significant, from a quarter tip to a full tip. Off, They think they're in the center, according to their eyes, but they're at least a quarter tip. And it could be less, a lot of them a little bit less, but significant to me is a quarter tip left or right to a full tip. 80% of the people are not seeing the center of the cue ball. And I would give the lesson. It would take me an hour or two to get them to trust me more than their eyes. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, okay, move over to the left, move the tip to the left. And when they keep moving it to the left, they're like, that's not right to them. I got them in the center. It doesn't look like the center to them. What would happen is take me that long time to get them, give them, uh, get them to center. But two weeks later, they would come back to me. And of course they were listening to their eyes because I wasn't there to coach them and they'd have the same problem. And, uh, one day I used some cardboard on the end of a cue stick, kind of cut out a little thing, uh, like a pitchfork thing. So 
that's how that all came about. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with the third eye stroke trainer, I've seen one, but if you haven't seen one, can you describe the product? Absolutely. It's been called a, a lot of things. Everything from uh, field goal post, pitchfork, thingamabob. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks like a, a set of field goal posts that clip on to the ferrule. A little plastic clips on to the ferrule, and then you have two, po- uh, two poles that extend out in front of the tip, about four inches, three to four inches. So when you put the tip on the middle of the cue ball, you have uh, the two posts on the side of the cue ball, you know, and you try to get them equidistant, and that gets it to the, it shows you where the center of the cue ball is. And it trains your eyes, but it also trains your stroke, too, because those guides, you're going back and forth as your stroke is crooked, those posts will touch the cue ball. Okay, so we've got the third eye stroke trainer, we've got guaranteed improvement, we've got racking secrets. Now, what was next? Um, I developed an aiming system based on, on pure math. It's called Aiming by the Numbers, endorsed by McNassie, put out by Aramis. And uh, it's matching contact points, which has been around forever. Parallel or matching contact points has been in books, but what I did was made it much easier to use. Uh, the old way that they would teach it was very, uh, it was just impractical. It was almost impossible to teach somebody how to use that. And a lot of players uh, were using contact point to contact point, consciously or subconsciously. And I had learned, uh, I had heard William Moscone talk about matching contact points, Jimmy Reed talk about uh, matching contact points and equal portions. And then one day at a tournament, I was sitting in my chair drinking coffee as usual. And I just started to mark the inside of my cup like a ball with these tick marks. And then I numbered them. And by numbering uh, the front half of the ball and matching and putting the same numbers on the object ball, I said, wow, whenever I have this shot, it's a two. This shot's a three. And they match up perfectly. It was just a great way to teach uh, matching or parallel contact points. And uh, so I went and made a little deal with Aramith, licensed that, got the balls out, did a training book and a couple of DVDs. And that was actually one of the best things that ever helped me because I was one of the players and still am uh, that has to hit a million balls to stay in stroke, you know, because I didn't have, I was all feel. And so I would search for the shot, wait for the picture, or, or when I was in stroke, it was no problem. But if I didn't play for a few days or a week, it would take me a long time. I'm not a very visual person. Um, but providing my brain with the exact answer of what two contact points with those numbers, uh, i say, okay, match up two to two. I didn't even have to hit a ball. I could practice watching other people play, just matching them. So that helped my game tremendously. It was like a, such a relief. So if, if, as if all of that wasn't enough, then there was the laser stroke trainer. Oh, yeah, I, I forget about that one. You know, that one's not complete because I haven't figured out a way to manufacture it cheap enough, you know. I was selling them, uh, I think I was paying like 100 bucks just to have them made. So there was no room to sell them dealers. I want to get them to people's hands, you know, 50 or $60, something under 100 for sure. That one also came from the students and the people, actually the people using the third eye. 
I got a lot of emails back saying, Joe, I'm in the center of the cue ball, but now I'm missing the object ball consistently <laughs> to the left or to the right. So I'm thinking, okay, this guy's in California. I'm here. I can't tell him. And I just started thinking, how can I help these people when I'm not there? How can I let them know that this is dead straight, even if it doesn't look right to their eyes? And that, I don't know how that laser thing came into my head. And I was like, and I just, I knew a guy that was building a laser rack. That's probably what triggered the lasers. Yeah, everybody sends me racks. I probably got 10 different prototypes or all these new racks, and they want me to test. This guy had a laser one that ensured uh, it hit receivers under the rail, so the rack was straight and in the same spot all the time. So uh, I asked him uh, if he could build it, and he's like, sure. Yeah. I call him my little, uh, even though we live in New England, but he was like my little redneck genius. He was building these things in his barn, and they were beautiful. Out of curiosity, you know, talking about the rack, um, for the longest time, and I mean this prior to the Sardo rack, um, you know, for the longest time, the pros said we need a consistent rack where all the balls are touching and there's no tilt to it and everything. And this was a big thing that that the pros came out and said was lacking in the game. And then the Sardos came out with their rack and it turned out to not be this godsend to the to the game, but it turned into something that could easily be manipulated, and it was almost like they accidentally created something that was bad for the game. Be careful what you ask for, right? Well, and and you know that I, I see that has happened in other places, you know, jump cues and and that sort of thing. You know, it, yeah. these inventions were created to make the game better, and it accidentally turned into something worse. Yeah. And see, I knew it about the nine ball rack. I knew why I was all upset was because uh, I knew a perfect rack. You could exploit the corner ball easily. And then, so if I was getting anything less than a perfect rack, but giving a perfect rack, I was like at a two or three game disadvantage. And I'm not talking about people that were intentionally doing it because it was 90% unintentional on everybody that was racking for me. You'd be surprised how many good players uh, can't rack well. Um, Yeah, so I knew how it's a huge, huge difference. Between two high-level players, I think the rack is the most important. You get two run-out players in nine ball, the rack is more important than anything else. And it shouldn't be that way, you know. It it should not be that way. So uh, they gave him the perfect rack, I still think you can use it. Like I, I, I don't mind the format of Magic Rack, even though it's easy to make the call on the ball. Alternating break. You know, I love to see two guys trade packages, race to nine. I think the best match I watched last year was Shane Van Boning and Biato in the eight ball finals, where they, I can't remember the total, but I know they, they alternated break and run out at least 14 out of the first 17 racks trading punches back and forth, back and forth, and that was the best match I've seen all year. Well, I'm with you on that. I, I know a lot of people who say that the fans want to see these big packages back and forth, but I like the idea of it being like a boxing match or a tennis match where I broke and ran, now it's up to you to break and run, and it's the first person who's going to blink. But Absolutely, Mike. 
I mean, we've all heard it. Yeah, I want to see packages. We all heard it. Just talk. You know, but usually it's a guy running six ranks. He's running like six Cosmos. It's because he made two or three on the break, and he's got an easy out. It's not like uh, – and I love the pressure of trading back. We we haven't yet to see it. That was the only match that I've ever seen where guys traded racks like that. Um, so it's tough for people to say that they want to see packages when they can't compare it to a match like we watched there where they traded blows. So I want to see more of that. Of all the stuff that we've talked about, it doesn't bring us up to your current endeavors. So I'm going to take a break real quick. We'll be right back, and then we'll talk about what you're doing now. definitely talk about that but to me what's more important is the other thing is the American Billiard Club Association uh, just American Billiard Club that I'm working on with Don Owen and Mark Griffin and this is a very important project I mean, it's something I've been working on for about three years and it's meant to solve a lot of problems for the industry and for the players okay I'm intrigued okay <laughs> Well, uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, when I, I pretty much quit pool when I had my first child. You know, I knew I was not going to miss my kids growing up um, running around the country. I love being a pro player, running around the country, breaking in for the whole year was a lot of fun. But I wasn't going to miss my kids or make them suffer. So I thank God I teach. That kept me in the game. Um, but if there was a better format um, that could have kept me in the game, me and I think maybe thousands of other players that play at a very high level that are very responsible people that have good jobs or go to school or have families doesn't make any sense for them to try to be a pro player nowadays you know go to uh, six to eight tournaments a year that cost them around I don't know ten fifteen thousand plus the time away there's no legitimate format so we lose a lot of in my opinion good people and we end up with a lot of struggling people. So I just devised a plan, and it touches on the other thing you were talking about, players paying their entry fee or earning it, where people like myself could play at home for seven or eight weeks locally. They play seven matches anytime in seven weeks, and they try to qualify for a regional tournament. That's one day locally. And then that's where they earn their spot to a national event. And if they earn that spot, the national event is only one or two days long, and we guarantee them at least $1,000 to make sure that this person is not losing money while supporting this, this tour or pursuing their passions. It sounds good so far. Um, how do players get involved at a local level? Well, we're trying to unify 64 of, uh, I would say, best billiard clubs, but really it's best room owners, you know. We're looking to unite 64 of the best uh, room owners in the country, and at each location, we allow eight players to compete. Uh, and that's it. We're looking to unify 64 room owners, 512 players, and it's going to serve, I can't say it's going to serve as a pro tour, it's more like a pro-am tour, 
or from golf, like Nike Tour, Web.com Tour, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, any Ramona can get eight players. We tell them they don't have to all be champions. It's more we want high-level play, but it's more people that we can rely on or people that you want to have in your room that you respect. And those players play amongst themselves. And the scheduling is very flexible. They could play on a specific night. Uh, a lot of room owners let their players play whenever they want, anytime, seven matches, anytime in seven weeks. Uh, so everybody's loving that. We get a little stigma right from the beginning when we called it a league. And so everybody makes a lot of associations. You know, if you think, hey, do you want to join my league? Well, you automatically think, all right, I got to be there on a specific night. If I don't show up, you have all the common headaches. So they weren't seeing the beauty or the flexibility of this, where they could play just about any time they like. So we're trying to get away from the word league. Okay. What has been the response so far? Well, I started in June. I took a East Coast trip over there, and we got 10 rooms on that one. We ran a season with with that, so 10 rooms. We only had 80 players. And... Um, Everybody that played liked it. We qualified eight players for the day before the U.S. Open. It's very important that people know we're working with other promoters. We don't schedule. We schedule with them. We try to get them players there. And this try to helps uh, the pro players. And if this is open, it's not a handicap. And we figure we held it the day before the U.S. Open. Everybody's guaranteed a 1,000. They can play on our event. And if they want to stay, if they plan on going to the U.S. Open, we can help them with, with those expenses. So uh, we had eight players at that first one, and we just had one at Derby City where we had 10 players, all guaranteed the 1,000. That was beautiful. I, I love having 10 guys show up, and I'll hit the ball guaranteed the 1,000. Well, now, how, how does the system work where you're able to guarantee that money? Okay, well, the weekly fees, We have, right now we have two options, and it's in a little state of flux, but I kind of like this option. The players, uh, they're playing the game, which we'll get to, American Rotation. So they're going to play seven matches. Each match averages about two and a half hours. Okay, so we let players sign up with uh, professional status or amateur status, and we leave it up to them. The pros are playing for full cash prizes all the way through. They can win money at a regional level. They can win money at the national level, and they pay $25 per match. So it's $175 over a two-week, uh, two-month period, and they play seven matches. The, the amateur pays $15 a match, but they're not playing for money. They're just playing. This is mostly for the ABC players that want to play tough competition. Uh, it makes it a more affordable way for them to play better players because we know if you want to get better, you have to play better players. So we let them pay $15 per match. The only money they could win is if they did happen to qualify for a national event, we would still provide them with $750 travel money. But that's the only money the amateurs are competing for. And it seems to work good because there's no handicap. And when they pay the $15, they're getting more than $15 worth of value. You know, they have that two- or three-hour match with a better player with a tough game, and they all they all seem very happy. Okay, and like you said, now they're playing American Rotation. Yes. Um, that game's working very well. Can you 
Can you explain American rotation to people who aren't familiar with it? Sure, no problem. And I'll explain a little bit of why. Now, first thing they should know is I didn't set out just for the hell of it to invent a new game. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't want to do that. Uh, what I'm the, the racking secrets guy, but I hate that part of pool. I really hate the arguing. I hate the importance of it. I hate the luck. Okay, and so that's part of the rules where we rack our own. We break our own, and we alternate the breaks. But the player starts with ball in hand, and we're not playing the ghost. It's interactive where you play defense and all. But each player gets to break their own rack and start the rack with ball in hand. And those rules came about um, so we don't have arguing over the rack. We don't have the luck factor after the break of a, a guy making a ball and happening to get a shot on the lowest numbered balls. And I'm not trying to switch away from 8-ball, 9-ball, 10-ball. We already have those games. I'm just trying to create a game that doesn't have the same problems. And 15-ball, because I got sick of hearing uh, the Filipinos grow up playing 15-ball, that's why they're better than us. Right. Why, why don't we do something about it? Well, now, what's the difference between American rotation and the traditional game that the Filipinos play? Well, that right there, starting the rack off with ball in hand, is huge. Everybody's like, really? Ball in hand? I mean, that's a, a pretty big difference right there. Um, our point system is different, but nobody knows it. It's really almost exactly the same. See, they, they score, if you make the two ball, that's two points. Three ball, three points. And they play a race to 61 points, or 60, as we saw last weekend. Um, what we do is we... It's one point for balls 1 through 10, and two points for balls 11 through 15. So there's 20 points a rack. And we play, like, score like staple. We play, like, a race to 150 points. And those, those matches take anywhere from two hours, and I've heard some that have taken four or five. It depends how good you are. Um, yeah, so they're scoring, they're scoring it like that. Um, it's called shot, call safe which means if your opponent misses a called shot, you have the option to make them shoot again. Oh, okay. Now, it's, it does sound very similar, and I'm curious, why the difference in the scoring system? Well, this one's a little bit easier, you know, to keep track of. Um, and it, we're not playing by the rack. If you played this game by the rack, America Rotation by the rack, it would be the same thing you would need balls one through 10, and then one of the stripes. And to get 61 points in uh, Filipino rotation, you need the same thing. Oh, okay. I guess I, yeah. I didn't think about it that way. Yes, yeah, I think if you add up 10 through 1 through 10, you might come up with 59. I'm not sure on that. I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure. So I could play a micro rotation by the rack, um, but everybody loves uh, the way we're doing it. You could play a race to 100. Uh, 150. But the players are happier, Mike. They get along like straight pool players compared to getting along like nine ball players. I mean, you ever noticed the difference there? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I could see a difference there. Yeah, you know, and these players, when they lose at this game, they are not mumbling to themselves saying, my God, I broke, I never made a ball. Every time he broke, it was easy. They're not making... Everybody has so many opportunities during this match 
that they know why they lost. You know, I'm not saying that they're happy <laughs> that they lost, uh, but they had opportunity where quite often uh, a lot of players don't feel like they have that. Now, if I'm a player and I want more information on American Billiard Club, where do I go for that? You go exactly right there, AmericanBilliardClub.com. And it, it might be in a little state of flux this week. Um, we're trying to get it out. I'm going to California next week. We're trying to get it ready and put some demands on, on the webmaster there, try to get it ready. Uh, but you can go to American Rotation. And now take it to the AmericanBillyClub.com, or you can go to American Billy Club, and that's going to send out the message and hopefully make it easier for everybody to understand what we're doing. You know, this can be so good, Mike. I mean, if we had a Nike tour for pool, it's a national product. It's worthy. I've already talked to sponsors outside the industry. It's worth. They say, yeah, 64 rooms, the whole nation, 500 players. That's worth you know, looking into. So it's good for the industry that way. And it solves the player expense problem. That's the biggest problem for a pro player, correct? Expenses? Yeah, I could see that. Um, I mean, I, I imagine that's that's got to be a big part of it. And, and again, not being in those shoes, it's hard for me to to really speak with authority on that. But But I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, I mean, you figure eight tournaments at 1500 a pop on average, and the amount of money that they can win, there's just not enough to go around. So instead of us saying, okay, uh, waving this big carrot that we can't fulfill, like you're going to win $100,000, um, we're just trying to stop the bleeding, stop <laughs> the, you know, <laughs> save them money, um, don't make any false promises, and just save them as much money as we can and keep them in the game. And and with that goal of 64 rooms, where are you at uh, at accomplishing that now? Well, the last season we only had 12, you know, which is 96 players. So it's about 20% of the way there. We have rooms in all the way New England, Virginia, Florida, Alabama, one Texas, Oklahoma. And I am really hoping to get eight rooms, just eight rooms. I'm going to be over here for two weeks. I want four Southern California, four in Northern California. And with, with 20 rooms on both coasts, I'm hoping that the, the center of the, the country will, will fill in. I was hoping for more support from high-level players to take a little bit of action. Maybe they don't know about it, but I've talked to some, and, you know, they've been beat up so bad that they're not even hearing what we're doing. This is a free shot. That money for a lot of these guys. It's a no-brainer. The worst thing that could possibly happen to these guys is they lose $1,000 a year if they never qualify for anything. But that's not going to happen, you know. We'll be able to reward the top 30 or 60 players and save them a lot of money. So they're not hearing the message. And I was counting on them to say, hey, why don't you, you know, to their local room, why don't you do this? Let's just get eight guys and do this. So that's not happening as fast as I would like you got to remember, though, these players have been being sold a bill of goods for so long. They Half of them jump on any bandwagon, and the other half say, no, this sounds too good to be true. I think I'll wait. Nope, you're 100% right. I understand. You know, I, It's just not happening as fast as I like, but it doesn't mean I don't understand. 
I know we're, we're in the position we are. I understand why, why we're in this position. I understand what's happened. Um, so I'm not frustrated. It's just uh, I'll be patient. Instead of one year up to 64, maybe it takes me three years or us three years to get to 64. I don't care because everybody that understands the format likes it, and they can't point out any flaws in it, why it's a bad idea. Nobody tells me that this is a bad idea. Nobody. You know. So we're just going to keep going forward. Well, based on your history in the game, I don't think anyone could accuse you of taking the easy route and giving up on something. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, so people can get information at AmericanBilliardClub.com, and then what we talked about early in the show, the the myriad number of products that you've invented, where can they get information on those? JoeTucker.net. And can they also get information there if they're on the East Coast and they're looking for lessons? Yeah, I feel really guilty right now. I mean, family guilty and student guilty. I got students back home and I got a few people around the country that I've been meeting. I've just been blowing them off. Not blowing them off, but can't get to them right now. Well, there's only so much you can accomplish even being the hardest working man in billiards. <laughs> yeah, listen, I think I'm talking to the hardest man. You never sleep. You're going 24-7 <laughs> over there. Tell, tell my family that. They tell me I sleep too much. Oh, my God. I'm going to get a text message from you. 5 a.m. I like this guy. 7 a.m. <laughs> what kind of hours does he keep in? Yeah, I keep bad ones. Uh, just ask Jerry. All right, Joe, I appreciate your time today, and I wish you all the luck in the world. Once again, it's AmericanBilliardClub.com and JoeTucker.net for more information. And I want to thank you guys for all that you've done over the years for pool and you continue to do. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you later, Joe. Bye, Mike. All right, bye. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Go Play Pool app featured room of the week. And today I'm talking to Chris Wilson down at the league room in Parkersburg, West Virginia. How are you doing, Chris? Just fine, Marianne. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How's the weather out there? Cold. Yeah. <laughs> Cold and snowy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're uh, – it was nice and sunny out here today. So uh, tell us a little bit about the league room. Uh, the league room is a new pool room that I've opened up in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, currently, we have uh, five tables with the uh, idea of expanding to uh, 12 to 15. Uh, it's, uh, we're we're building as we go and trying to uh, give the area a new, refreshed sense of, of pool and, and billiards and everything that everybody was usually complaining about. Uh, the equipment, mostly what I have is uh, all diamond pool tables, so... That's something new to the area. Um, mm -hmm. Anybody that gets out of this area realizes that if you're going to play uh, in any of the national tournaments or any of the bigger um, out-of-town tournaments, you're going to have to play on the diamond pool tables. So mm -hmm. I've been working with diamond real closely and getting as many as I can in. And by the end of March, I will have five diamonds in the room, um, four seven-foot pro-ams and a nine-foot uh, professional. Currently, there is a nine-foot professional and two seven-foot uh, programs right there. Oh, great. Sounds good. Yeah, I love diamonds. So, that's what we've put together. Uh, it's been kind of a struggle converting everybody over, but uh, we currently have leagues playing out of there on Sunday for a BCA um, league and Thursdays 
we have a uh, a Napa Nine Ball League that plays out of there. Um, so we are getting everybody acclimated to the diamonds and the, and the rails and everything. So, but uh, in case people aren't wanting to switch, we do have uh, two brand new Grade Eight Valleys in there as well. Oh, great. So, um, do you, do you have any tournaments or anything during the week? Yeah, we do a Friday night weekly tournament, um, and we do a, an odd format for that. It's actually uh, player's choice. Uh, we vote before we start, and generally what we've been doing is doing a uh, a long race nine ball on the winner's side and a short race eight ball on the loser's side. So it's uh, kind of different from anything I've ever seen uh, where yeah. you play both games in one tournament. So uh, and we've had a lot of good luck with that, and do a break and run pot uh, that's you know been growing. We've only been doing the tournament for a few weeks now, and it's well over a hundred dollars. Um, we do a ten ball on the nine foot diamond, nice. so that does pretty well itself. Great. Um, so, any other amenities or anything like queues or repairs or anything? <clears throat> well, we're working on a queue repair station. Um, working with a, a local queue maker who is possibly getting out of the industry, and uh, we're working on getting some equipment in and doing some on-site queue repairs. Uh, we do sell all, all the, the normal accessories. Uh, we keep um, about 25 queues in stock, ranging anywhere from um, just a regular J&J um, through the Dale Perrys and up to our higher-end uh, Jacoby models that we keep all in stock, uh, along with the Jacoby hybrid shafts that we keep in stock as well. So right. currently uh, we're working on a a larger tournament in the uh, middle to end of February. Actually, January, or February 22nd is going to be our large tournament that we're working real hard on. It's called Shoot for a Cure, mm -hmm. and that tournament is to raise funds for cancer research. I personally have a pool team on Sunday night that has two people uh, uh, very closely affected by the disease, mm -hmm. and um, we're trying to raise some money to to give to the uh, Cancer Society um, as well as the Cancer Research Center to try to help in, in their um, chemo and, and other things that they're going through. It's doing really well uh, in the fundraising stage of it. We've okay. got uh, probably between 25 and 35 people um, pre-registered to come and play in the tournament and the sponsorship has been just absolutely outstanding on, on how well we've been able to get people to be receptive to it. I've got uh, obviously things donated from GoPlaypool.com, go uh, Jeanette Lee, Melissa Little, um, there's things from Dr. Q. We have a, uh, a vest worn by Dr. Q in the 2008 Artistic Q Cup um, nice. It's signed by uh, lots and lots of uh, well-known players, including uh, Andy Siegel, Dr. Q, Jeanette Lee, and, and many, many, many more. So we have lots of items for the uh, auction, and, and um, we're going to do a, a fun-filled day of, of pool and fundraising. Um, that's great. I'm, I'm hoping that it's a huge success for you guys and that you, know, you guys can raise a lot of money for the cause and everything and have fun playing pool. Yes. <laughs> All right, so um, do you guys have food or anything like that? Yes, we have a, a small concession-type cafe is what I call it, uh, pepperoni rolls, pretzels, um, like the, the baked pretzels. We keep uh, soups and chilies on on the uh, pot there, so 
um, pretty much just handmade sandwiches and stuff. It's it's uh, kind of um, more of a concession uh, stand type cafe is what I like to call it. Well, that's all you need. <laughs> yeah, and um, the the actual room does not have a uh, an alcohol license, so uh, we do allow BYOB into the room, so it's mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt us that bad because it's yeah. actually cheaper for the people that choose to to t- right. partake in that. Um, um, and most of the time, I find that six out of the seven nights, it's not even present at the room, so it, it works right. out good for everybody. Uh, we don't have to deal with some of the out-of-hand things and that comes with that, and uh, people that do absolutely have to have it can still consume. Yeah, who needs booze when you're playing, right? Yeah. <laughs> some people. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's, it, it's nice to have a nice, cold, refreshing beverage while you're yeah. trying to figure out how to beat the guy or girl on the table. But, uh, you know, it, um, it, it to each their own, it's... All right, so uh, just let everybody know where you're at and how they can get in touch with you. Okay, uh, again, this is the League Room. We're in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Uh, the actual physical address is 1739 St. Mary's Avenue there in Parkersburg with the zip being 26101. Um, you can Google billiard halls or pool halls in Parkersburg, West Virginia and find us. We're also on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash the League Room. I believe we have a link on goplaypool.com that will get you to our room. And um, we have a website on the interweb there, www.theleagueroom.com. All right, great. Yes, and you can find a a limited profile right now of the league room and be able to find uh, information on how you can get in touch with them and and, uh, see about joining the tournament or league and so check out the Go Play Pool app. It is free to download on Android and iOS. So, yeah, thanks for, for sitting down and talking with me, Chris. Oh, no problem. Uh, also, I just want to throw in there real quick, even if you can't make the tournament and still want to donate, if you go to our website, uh, com, there is a donate button at the bottom of the page. Um, anything helps uh, to help us raise this money. A, a $5 donation up to whatever anything anybody can afford, they can do that at the bottom of the website. Great. We'll uh, we'll make sure to post something about that just to uh, let people know where they can go to donate if they can't make it down there. So, awesome. Right. Yes. Thank you so much again for for joining us on uh, the Go Play Pool app featured room of the week on American Billiard Radio. Cool. All Thank right. you, Megan. All right, Chris. Thank you so much. Hi, welcome to this edition of the Legends and Champions Report with myself, Mark Kentrell, on American Billiards Radio. I'm joined with a special guest again this week, um, probably the most famous top-rated referee in the world today, and that is Miss Michaela Tebb. How are you doing today, Michaela? Hi, I'm fine, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I, I do appreciate it. I know that you've got your hands full right now with... Uh, bonus ball and running back and forth doing whatever it is that they need you to do. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try not to keep you too long. Just got a few little questions here and there that uh, uh, we might find interesting to some of the listeners. You know, you're pretty famous in America. You know. Oh really? I didn't. I, I, I don't suppose actually. I know how um, big the game is over here. Um, huge on the amateur level. I, I'm not really sure of um, how big billiards is in sort of the pro level now. Well, you know, it's, 
I guess that depends on who you ask. You know, the 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 game is kind of all over the place right now. Is trying to figure out. I think he's trying to figure out his pathway. And um, you know, you and I grew up under similar circumstances. I, I believe. Uh, well, you know, from the United Kingdom anyway. And you know, we we grew up with uh, there was a structure to professional snooker. You know, yeah. I know you're much, much, much younger than I am, but, you know, th- that whole, uh, you know, Steve Davis coming up and uh, Pop Black and all that, those kind of things, um, it was a lot more structured then, and if only Poole could do what happened in the 80s for snooker here, you know, the professional scene, I think, is going to get a lot bigger. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. So how, how's Vegas, Vegas treating you? So far, you like the weather, right? Oh, it's well. It's really warmed up since I first arrived. It was quite cool. Um, it's beautiful now. Uh, yeah, and uh, most of the days are free because we're only filming in the evening, obviously to get the the maximum audience. So the, the majority of people have got the opportunity to see it. So it's been very relaxing. I've enjoyed um, using the gym down here and and been out and done a bit of walking around because uh, just feeling that sunshine coming down on your face is just wonderful. Because we it's cold back home as well so, uh, <laughs> taking full advantage i i know well you, you're probably in a maybe an unusual position than you usually and i know you know i do my traveling and and that kind of thing uh, all over the country and i've been to san antonio don't know how many times but i've never seen the alamo because it's kind of like you go to the location to the event then you work, maybe you get to go to a restaurant in the evening, and you go back to work, and then you leave, and you go back home again. So is this the first time you've had a chance to kind of enjoy Las Vegas outside of? Well, I've definitely been having a more relaxing time this time, and the schedule has been a lot easier. We had a lot of matches we needed to put in on the bonus ball calendar in my last visit. Um, and, of course, previous to that was the Moscone Cup where you have, um, like you said, you basically work all day. You've got an afternoon session uh, that goes all afternoon. So we did have our evenings, which was pleasant that I could go because my husband came. So we were able to go out and sort of enjoy it then. But most times when I go to work, you're working afternoon and evening. So then you, you kind of wind down, go to bed, get up, um, have breakfast, get ready and go back to work. It is very much uh, not a, a vacation. It is very much a, a working schedule wherever I am in the world. Um, this has just been quite relaxing, very nice. <laughs> you, you, well, you travel a lot, don't you? It's on and off, yes. I'm, I can have times when I'm at home. Like over the summer, the, uh, last summer, I was home for three months in one stretch. Now, I haven't been home for that long in years, the, the way that my schedule worked. It just depends on what events my bosses want me at with the snooker, and then everything right. else has to sort of fall into place around that. So I've um, hit a busy schedule just now. I'm Once I came here, I don't actually have more than 14 days at home, I think, until the end of March. It's it really is just I've hit a busy schedule but my husband appreciates obviously when I'm at home we have to um, enjoy that time with the family because this is what can happen and you just got to we've got to work we've got to pay the bills just the same as everybody else exactly and it's amazing that who who'd have thought it when you were growing up watching I'm guessing growing up watching Snooky you've always probably had an interest in the Q sports and Len yeah. Gamley was refereeing and and that kind of thing. 
who'd have thought when you're watching snooker, which was male-dominated with the referees, that a, a, a gal from Scotland is going to end up being the most well-known, most famous, and top referee in all of Q sports, really, uh, in the world. Because you've got snooker, bonus ball, and uh, obviously the, the pool scene. Who would, would you have believed anybody 20 years ago or more that that would happen to you in your life? No, I, absolutely not. It's um, I was a fan of snooker before I even picked up the cue to play pool myself, which is eventually how I obviously sort of fell into refing. Um, I mean, I remember a number of uh, key snooker moments in the years gone by. You know, Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis in 85 battling out the world finals. You probably watched that yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk Stevens getting his 147. Cliff Thorburn getting his 147. Those were all sort of massive memories because I was a huge fan as a young girl. The whole family was. Um, and to think now, you know, what I, I I got involved in it and then what I've achieved is um, unbelievable because you don't go to school and think I'm going to be a snooker referee or a pro referee. <laughs> it's, it's just not the done thing. So, you know, it was my life was never mapped out like that. I'm just very lucky um, that I was able to sort of fall into this very unusual career because I've had some amazing opportunities and been to some amazing places and met some wonderful people through it. Obviously, I, I wouldn't have been able to have achieved that um, if I hadn't fallen into the game. Yeah, it's uh, it really is a, an amazing kind of a, a story, and you get. I, I still I can't imagine you know what you would think if you if you, you know you sat watching TV watching the World Snooker Finals, and one day all of a sudden you're the referee for the final at Sheffield. Yes, I know. Yeah, it's got to blow your mind a little bit sometimes. Uh, how, how long have you been involved with the Moscone Cup? Um, my first one was 98, I think, um, if I remember rightly. John McDonald and I both started together. I'm sure it was 98. So that's 15 I've had now. I think that's right, because I did my 15th one um, last year here in Vegas. So, uh, yeah, it's been uh, unbelievable, really. Um, when I started, when I did that first pool event for uh, Matchroom back in 97, it was a one-day event in Scotland, I had no idea that I was going to be where I am now, sort of looking back. It was just a, a one-day gig in in Scotland because it was local. And then I got asked to go to the next one, which was down in London, and I've basically been with them ever since. Very, very bizarre. Yeah, making a living. I, yeah. I would never, I, I'd never, you know, I'd put myself in a, a spot going, well, a referee, I might be making a good living being a referee. Absolutely. Uh, there's not that many of us that probably can uh, make a decent living out of it, to be honest, because it's not, it's not that um, great a job. But there's the, the two full-time sort of snooker refs within World Snooker and then myself as a part-time because I do more on the, the side on other stuff. Um, you know, we get a, a good life out of it, which is nice. Um, yes, yeah, you, yeah. you do the Legends Tour as well, don't you, with John Virgo and all those guys? Yeah, absolutely. That That's an amazing um, tour that goes on with the Snooker Legends. We've had Kirk Stevens and Cliff Thorburn over as well um, from Canada, which has been amazing. Uh, and I've actually been in a position that I've been able to ref people that had retired from the game through that. So I've ticked a number of boxes of meeting and, and actually officiating um, people like Ray Reardon, who was long out of the game, you know, an absolute legend. It's uh, 
real right. good fun those events, and uh, you know I love being involved. I, I was talking. I had Luke Riches and Jimmy White uh, on uh, doing an interview over the last few weeks. And did you know that Blackpool's almost sold out? It, it is sold out. Since you've obviously spoken to Luke, it is sold out. They put the second wave of tickets on sale, and they all went as well, which is unbelievable. Now, I was just at that venue in January for the snooker shootout, and right. they, both teams are going to get a shot coming to them because this is not an audience that when I put my hand in the air quietens down, which is what I normally <laughs> can achieve. This, this lot will just completely ignore me. They will sing, they will shout, they will scream, they will do whatever they want um, all through the playing. And because there are so many, because I, I reckon we're going to have uh, upwards of 700, maybe even more towards eight, I haven't got a hope in hell in being able to control that crowd. So, but the thing is, the more noise there is, actually the less it bothers you. Um, but it's just going to be completely different. I mean, for instance, Mika Eminen, he likes absolute silence when he's on a shot. Well, he can just forget it. If he's in the team, he can forget it. They'll all just have to get on with it because we're not going to be able to quieten them down. And that's what will be very special about that place. It's going to be very different from what we've had before. Yeah. this is. A, it's gonna, they haven't even announced the teams yet. I keep saying this. Look, we, we just got done with the last one, basically, right, a couple of months ago. We got done with the last one. Yeah. And we're already talking about the next one, with Mark Wilson being announced early as a captain yeah. this year. And the ticket, they haven't announced the teams, and the tickets are already sold out. Can you well, believe how much Well, traction? the thing is, they don't care who's in the team. The event is always so great. It doesn't matter who's playing. They're not going to see a particular individual when they go to that event. They're going to be part of the America versus Europe. So the actual names don't matter. It's the event. It's just it's such an amazing event. Let me ask you about that bonus ball. How, how did this all come about? I mean, it was a little bit of a, a shock to a lot of people that – uh, all of a sudden, Michaela Tapp, you know, a world-famous referee, is getting involved in the bonus ball. It uh, came as a little bit of a surprise to people. Um, but obviously, you you bring the, the game uh, a lot of credibility and uh, a lot of respect. Uh, I think everybody knows it had a had its kind of rough points there for a little bit. So, Yeah, well, um, they had... Well, from what I can understand, obviously the season started um, and things didn't go quite to plan. So then their scheduling got, um, well, they halted it for a while, didn't they? Well, they, they sort of stepped back and then um, figured out how they could take it forward again. Um, in the meantime, the, the referee that they were using, Lee Brent, he had taken some additional work, as you would, of course. And it ended up that he wasn't available to do the, the second um, stint that they had worked in. I think it was about eight days I was over in November um, all working with them on it. Um, so when he wasn't available, um, the organizer had spoken to some of the players about obviously who they could get, and they had mentioned me. Um, and on the off chance that I would be interested or even free, um, they got in touch with me. And as it happens, I was. So I had heard uh, about bonus ball from Raj. Raj Handal had been talking about it because um, I'm in touch with him quite a lot. Um, so, you know, he said, you know, would I be interested? And I was like, well, of course, if it works with the dates, any, I can ref anything. You know, the the actual art of refereeing is the same. You've just got to learn the rules of, of whatever particular game it is. So they asked me, and I, I said, yeah, absolutely, and came out. And I've got to say, um, this is the hardest game I've ever had to ref, 
because as a referee, you've, you've got to be on it and listening um, all match. You, there's no moment to, like in snooker, if somebody's on a big break, you can basically spot the balls and you're not, you don't have to really be there 100% right. because you're, you, you just go into auto mode. Um, call, the scores become automatic and the spotting of the balls sort of becomes automatic. Um, you, it's not like that with this. Because it's a call shot game, you've got to listen to the teams talking um, to, to figure out what they're doing. So that um, Because I don't want them to have to point or, or tell me every shot they're doing. I can listen to the conversation and, and pick that up. That's enough for me. So you're, you're having to give it 100% all the time. But do you know what? This leaves nine ball in its wake. The talent that these guys have to produce um, is amazing. I absolutely adore it. And again, it comes back to the team aspect of it because it's not an individual. So you've got the excitement and the adrenaline flow in of the, the whole team thing. And with the shot clock, it's just amazing. This is my favorite billiard game. Is it really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, above snooker and... Well, snooker. I, I don't. I don't regard snooker the same because that's. I mean, obviously, it's it's a billiard game of, of a description, I suppose. But snooker is a completely different level. So that's on its own, and there's nothing that can compete with that. As far um, as the billiards, pool and billiards. Absolutely. Games. You know, um, ten ball, eight ball, nine ball, whatever. This to me is is the best. I just I I love it. I love seeing their talents coming out. You don't see that with nine ball because they're only on one ball. So at their level you're very rarely wowed. The only person that ever wowed me on a nine-ball table was um, Efren Reyes. He is the only person that's ever been able to blow me away and surprise me. I think he's going to do one thing and he does something else. I, this, is, this wows me, this bonus ball game. I absolutely adore seeing their, um, their brains ticking over and their safeties coming in and um, their, their shot-making. Honestly, if you've seen some of the shot-making we've had this week, it has, it's been phenomenal. Um, you can do nothing but love this game. Yeah, no, it seems like you've uh, always been, uh, from what I've heard, you've, you've been excited about the game since the since you first started up with them. I don't know if you've followed it before, but it uh, seems like it's been something that you've enjoyed. Yeah, um, no, I, I didn't follow it before. Um, I hadn't. The, the problem for me was you would have to sit in front of a computer, and, unless you're one of these techie people that's got your internet linked up to your TV, <laughs> which I'm not. So, you know, when I'm at home, unfortunately, I, I kind of got my two kids and my husband that take up my time, so I don't get a lot of time to sort of sit around and watch stuff. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with you here with a question that. Now you've had a chance to spend some time a little bit and relax and walk around a little bit in Vegas. What's what is it that you like the most? You think about America in general? It's obviously not biscuits and gravy. You've got something against biscuits and gravy. Oh, I don't know if I've just not had a good batch of them, but it just looked disgusting. And, um, and But I decided to have a go because I thought, you know, there's no point in me slating something I've not tried, and it was disgusting. It was horrible. I thought the whole consistency of it was, ugh, yuck. Not, not for me at all. That's probably one of the dislikes that I have about America, and I don't have many. I mean, every every country's got its own thing going on, but um, I I really struggle with the healthy eating over here. Um, <laughs> uh, you guys are just seriously not into um, the healthy eating side of things that we are. 
and uh, so that I find very difficult to to try and sort of maintain that the portion sizes and oh don't get me wrong everything tastes wonderful it's just so full of calories it's untrue. No, I, and I you know I the, the, I think the big difference is that when you talk about the healthy and see I cook all the time I cook all the time at home and I cook right. from fresh I cook from fresh and I tell my girl Jessica you know. In England, it's different because you've got you can go down the high street and you can go to a butcher shop and a yeah. greengrocer shop and a fishmonger's and get fresh ingredient at your fingertips, just about that's yeah. not being chemically induced and all that kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, I can see how, you, especially in Vegas. I mean, I I don't really know the area that you're in. I'm sure the supermarkets that have fresh stuff and you can work with that a bit but what, what, what is it that you what is it that you like what, what's your favorite food that you don't have in the UK I, I can't think of um, anything to be honest well, give me some ideas about what it could be oh boy you're going with a healthy eating well Subway we've got yes. Subway I, I, I'd never go to a Subway I, I don't do that um, I've not eaten any of your big pizzas because that's not healthy for me. You've got no idea. I am so boring when it comes to um, the foods when I'm working over here. What I do love, right, I've got it. I've absolutely got it. My favorite thing that I love over here that we can't seem to do and get right in the UK is steak and eggs for breakfast. But a quality steak, the seasoning right. that they get on that steak, I don't know what it is they put on it, but I absolutely adore it. And whenever my husband comes over with me for um, the Moscone Cup, the, the first morning after we've arrived, we always go down to the restaurant and have steak and eggs for breakfast with hash browns. It is amazing. Now, you see, I don't know if you grew up as poor as I did, but when we had a steak at home, my mom would make a steak, she'd make it in, in the frying pan, right? Mm-hmm. Not a barbecue or a grill or anything like that. And it was like thin. It was so thin. It was like a shoe leather almost. And right. she always overcooked it, and it was always chewy. I think it's just because we were poor and we just couldn't afford the proper stuff. Or maybe other people around the UK ate big fat steaks. But when I came here and, and ordered a steak and I looked at the thickness of it, I went, "Geez, Louie, are you kidding me?" Yeah. I feel like you've got me. And I'm a, I'm, I'm, I don't like cheap meat. Um, I'd rather not bother than have cheap meat. I don't like chewy things. Rib, well, what we term as a ribeye, I don't know what you would call it here. I don't like that. I don't like it when it's got the fat in it. Um, so I'm a filet mignon girl. So it's got to be a quality steak and eggs. I don't want any of the cheap rubbish. <laughs> I'll give you one, one last place that might help you, interest you. How far are you? Well, you know the Riviera. You mean the Riviera? Yes. In their food court, this is the most amazing thing. In their food court, there they have uh, Indian little Indian place. You get okay. Chicken tikka masala. Do, do you like Indian? Yes, I do. Chicken tikka masala, the the rice and the chapatis, the whole thing. It's like seven dollars. You can't you can't finish it, and it's the best curry I've ever had in America. Oh really? Yeah. So if you feel like a curry, that'd be the place for you to go. Wow, I'll I'll remember that actually because um, well I've been there a number of times. We had a few tournaments, matchroom tournaments over there, and I never found anywhere decent to eat in that hotel. And I've obviously missed that one, so I'm going to need yeah. to go back and try that now. 
they got the Queen Vic there now as well, where they've got, it's rubbish, though, don't bother with it. It's shepherd's pie and stuff, but it's not like you're going to do at home. Oh, uh, right. Anyway, I think this interview turned into a reminiscent about English food somehow. <laughs> so, <laughs> I really appreciate your time, Michaela, and I uh, wish you the best of luck with uh, your, what, how many more games you got with Bonus Bowl? We've got, well, the semi-finals start tonight, so we've got the New York versus Atlanta, and we're live on ESPN3 tonight. This is obviously Wednesday night. Semi-final two tomorrow night, Thursday night, and then the final on Saturday at 1 o'clock, so we've got the three left. But we're also doing um, a charity game on Friday night, which is um, the Filipino team that's flying in with uh, two of the members, with Warren Kiamko, playing the All-Stars to raise money for the typhoon relief in the Philippines. So anybody that would like to sort of sign up for the $99 deal on that is all the money is going towards the, the relief fund. So that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And those, those guys are having a tough time over there. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, anybody you want to mention, say hello to, or thank? We, you know, we get a, a number of viewers on the, the side following us now. I'm going to make sure everybody knows that you're going to be on the show. And you do have a lot of fans over here. So if you get anybody you'd like to mention, sponsors, endorsers. Uh, no, I'm fine. I do. They get enough from me. They don't need to get any extra. No, I just, to be honest, I'd like to thank my fans because um, I'm obviously in a very privileged position. And um, on the whole, my fans have been amazing um, throughout my career. And it's phenomenal to be in a position um, not of envy and jealousy, but of people that are actually encouraging um, and um, supporting. And I really do appreciate that. Right on. Well, thank you very much again, Michaela, and uh, maybe I'll see you in Blackpool. Okay, darling. Thank you. That's it for the Legends and Champions Report with myself, Mark Kentrell, and my special guest, Michaela Tab on American Believe Radio. We will see you next time.